Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 96, Journal Square, a brief history of chemical journals. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. As we exit the scary and surprising 1980s, I thought it appropriate to pause and look at a way chemists tell other chemists about their experiments, a regularly published journal or magazine, and the development of the modern chemical journal. So, as with most entrenched customs in chemistry, we start back in the 17th century. In the mid-1600s, just as chemistry was beginning to be seen as a separate form of natural philosophy, the typical way for natural philosophers of the day to tell their colleagues of their latest, greatest, exciting experimental news was by several methods. The first way to inform colleagues was to publish a book. But this required enough new material to write and publish it. Book writing was therefore a slower, irregular process. The second way to tell other people was to write them letters. In fact, unless you were a truly famous person, you probably had to write many, many letters to all your colleagues around Europe because chemistry really was a European phenomenon back then, and wait a while to see if you piqued anyone's interest. At that time, such a group of like-minded natural philosophers was often termed an invisible college. The well-known Robert Boyle wrote letters in the late 1640s describing his scientific friends as an invisible college, or even a philosophical college. The third way, which was just beginning to take hold in Robert Boyle's day, was to have regular meetings and discuss the latest scientific results. Often these meetings were meals, snacks, and drinks, for who doesn't like to eat and chat? These meetings evolved by 1660 into the Royal Society in England and the French Académie des Sciences in 1666. They began to give credit for first priority in discovery. But there suddenly appeared a fourth way at that time. The secretary of the Royal Society, Henry Oldenburg, was a bit of a money-grubber and thought that maybe he could make a bit of cash by writing down what was discussed at the Royal Society meetings and publishing it. He did get the approval of the Royal Society, though what he published wasn't an official work of the Royal Society. I quote from one issue in 1666, quote, Whereas tis take notice of that several persons persuade themselves that these philosophical transactions are published by the Royal Society, notwithstanding many circumstances, to be met with in the already published ones that import the contrary, unquote. And thus, the first issue of the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society came out on March 6, 1665, 
and has been in print with minor interruptions ever since to this very day. Oldenburg's new journal included reviews of the latest books. He published letters to him on new experiments and observations, and even reports about what was discussed at the Royal Society's meetings. The catch was that he never earned over forty pounds per year from this enterprise, which just matched the rent on his house. There is another claimant to being the first scientific journal, one started by a French lawyer and writer, Denis de Salo. He founded the Journal des Savants on January fifth, sixteen sixty-five, three months before the Philosophical Transactions. Now we can say it was an academic journal, but agreement is less clear as to whether it counts as a scientific journal. There was far less, but not zero, new scientific material in Journal des Savants. Some important new science did appear in the French journal, such as Dane Oleroemer's experiments showing that light has a finite speed in 1676. This journal still exists as well currently, but is now angled toward literature and history, not science. I will leave the historian's arguments over which was first and move forward to the 18th century. One of the hallmarks of modern scientific publishing is that of peer review. Peer review means that your scientific peers examine your manuscript before printing it and decide whether the science is worthy of publication. In a sense, it validates the published paper to a degree and raises the bar against most pseudoscience, fakery, and poorly designed experiments. Peer review began to appear in 1752 when the Royal Society installed a committee to choose appropriate papers for publication. The committee was largely a response to a satire of the declining quality in papers, as written by John Hill in 1751 in his parody called "A Review of the Works of the Royal Society of London," containing animadversions on such. Of the papers, as desire particular observations. By the later 18th century, there was enough division of natural philosophy into subfields that we find the first truly chemical journal. This happened in 1778, when chemistry, finally considered a full-fledged science, received its own regular periodical, run by Lorenz von Krell in Germany. Named Chemisches Journal für die Freunde der Naturlehre, Arzneigelartheit, Haushaltungskunst und Manufakturen, appearing yearly or semi-yearly between 1778 and 1780. French chemistry got its own chemical journal, Annales de Chimie, founded by Lavoisier and buddies Bernard de Moreau, Berthollet, and de Fourcroy. Specifically, to promote antiphlogiston new chemistry, another physics and chemistry periodical, Annalen der Physik und der Chemie, came out in 1790, and these were largely enough for the relatively little amount of chemistry being done at the time. Such chemistry periodicals were generally run by individuals, not organizations. 
As the rate of organic chemistry research exploded in the 1820s, more chemists founded their own journals to promote chemical discoveries. Berzelius began the Jahresberichte in 1822 as an annual review of that year's chemical developments. Liebig, for example, began his Annalen der Pharmacie in 1832, which was later renamed Justus Liebig's Annalen der Chemie, and still exists as the European Journal of Organic Chemistry. Two years later, Otto Lina Erdmann edited the Journal für Praktische Chemie, and by 1841 there were 74 such journals. Again. Enough for the growing European demand at the time, but that began to change as successful chemical societies began to develop at this time. Liebig also began the publication mill method of making PhDs, that is, getting your work published to show you have done independent research. A new development in the mid nineteenth century was chemical journals published by commercial printing companies. Though such firms really were more interested in books than specialized magazines, they did serve purposes to get the article out fast to show controversies, and chemists at the time did engage in some serious name calling in these journals. They allowed many more small topics to be promoted, along with so-called unorthodox experiments, and you could even get an idea of what's going on in other countries. By reading their journals, scientific espionage in a way. Then, by the 1860s, popular science magazines rose in popularity in Britain. Recall, this was the prime time of the Industrial Revolution, and every year some new technology or discovery was big news. The first of these magazines was the 1859 Chemical News, edited by. William Crookes, later of Crookes Tube fame, there was so much new organic chemistry, patents, and applied chemistry that the philosophical magazine couldn't accommodate it all. Crookes's journal was a weekly with great financial success and a subscription of ten thousand by eighteen sixty nine. One commercial journal, though not specifically chemistry oriented. We have already mentioned multiple times. Nature, which still exists, was founded in that year, eighteen sixty-nine. Simultaneously, we already know of the rise of professional chemical organizations in the mid eighteen hundreds. The first successful chemical organization, the Chemical Society of London, began publishing its own journal, Quarterly Journal of the Chemical Society of London. Which later became the Journal of the Chemical Society in 1847. By 1858, the Société Chimique de Paris began to print the Répertoire de Chimie Pure and Répertoire de Chimie Appliquée. The Deutsche Chemische Gesellschaft started its own chemical journal upon founding in 1867, its Berichte. So by the later 19th century. Professional organizations' journals were displacing the privately and commercially run periodicals, and this is the trend that continues to this day. We'll be right back.
Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. As for the United States, of course, there was no general chemical society for a very long time, as we have discussed. There were local chemical societies, with the New York Chemical Society most prominent, founded in 1876, egotistically calling itself the American Chemical Society, and publishing its own journal, Proceedings of the American Chemical Society, which was renamed three years later as Journal of the American Chemical Society, or JACS, or JACS, familiarly, as I mentioned. As the ACS grew in stature, it began to absorb other independent journals, such as the Journal of Analytical and Applied Chemistry in 1893. But now we have to take into account the vast avalanche of new chemical knowledge appearing. We have spoken of the strong interest in chemical indexes and abstracts in order to keep track of this flood of information. And likewise, one national journal per country was not even enough. This meant that all sorts of subspecialties required their own journals. For example, in 1909, the ACS started Industrial and Engineering Chemistry for its chemical engineers. The Journal of Physical Chemistry began in 1896 through the efforts of one of Ostwald and Van Hoff's American students, Wilder Bancroft, as a private journal, but was absorbed into the American Chemical Society's portfolio of magazines in 1933. American journals, however, didn't reach their present stature until after World War I, for Germany was the center of chemistry research until then. William Noyes, for example, commented about things in 1923 that, quote, despite the dreadful financial situation in which Germany finds herself at the present time, the Berichte der Deutschen Chemischen Gesellschaft has published during the past year about 4,000 pages of original papers, and this in addition to a large volume of publication in Justus Liebig's Annalen der Chemie, Journal für Praktische Chemie, Zeitschrift für Physikalische Chemie, and other journals. Are we willing to admit that here in America, now the richest country in the world, we cannot do as much for our scientific publication as is done by Germany? Unquote. That year, 1923, is when the ACS began the weekly chemistry news magazine, Industrial and Engineering Chemistry, News Edition, renamed Chemical and Engineering News two decades later, and is still published, I Receive It. This magazine provides a weekly digest of new research, business events, and opinion columns for its members. Over the course of the 20th century, 
the Journal of the American Chemical Society attained its reputation, as Helen Cook notes, and it, quote, is now generally accepted as the world's most prestigious chemistry journal, unquote. Surprisingly, not until 1966 did the British Chemical Society follow the example of the splitting up of American chemical journals into subspecialties. In that year, its journal was divided, like Gaul, I suppose, into tres partes. Part A, which was inorganic and physical chemistry with a smattering of general chemistry. Part B, which was physical organic chemistry. And Part C, which was solely organic chemistry. After World War II, the use of English as the general language of chemistry has spread. Most of the European and national journals, whether French, German, Swiss, or other chemical periodicals, have shifted from their local language to English. When I was an undergraduate student at University of Pennsylvania in the early 1980s, chemistry students needed to learn a non-English language, and French, German, or Russian were recommended because of the still prominent but already seriously declining use of those languages in journals. Let's shift gears and talk a bit about what a chemistry paper needs on a structural level to be published. In the chemical world, you generally see the following types of papers. 1. Original research in which you talk about one or more experiments you ran and what you think it means for chemistry. 2. Technical notes, in which you describe a new piece of equipment you have designed and built to run special experiments and how the wider chemical community might use it. 3. A review collecting existing reports and research into one cohesive description to help others find their way in that subfield of chemistry. 4. Letters to the editor, which are just that, letters to ask questions and criticize others' papers. 5. Rapid communications, designed to tell everyone as fast as possible of some new, groundbreaking research before a full report is ready. This is often done to establish first priority of discovery. In my time doing science, I have published most of the above types. Usually, a chemical research paper is structured according to a fairly rigid format. You choose a title to capture the essence of your paper. You list the authors of the paper, with the primary author, the chief person, such as the professor or laboratory leader, listed last. Then you write an abstract, which is a paragraph summarizing your entire paper's main points. After that comes the body of the paper. First you provide an introduction to the field showing that you know what has already been researched. Then you describe the question you try to answer. Then your experimental methods, that is, all the materials, equipment, and laboratory conditions needed to run the experiments. This is necessary so that others can rerun your work to check and advance another step. Then you give the results. What did you find? You provide all data, which may be in charts, 
graphs, photographs, or even a verbal description of the product you synthesized, including all its salient physical and chemical properties. Finally, you talk about why you got the results you got and how they fit into current chemical knowledge. I will say that the tone of chemical writing has shifted from two centuries ago to now. Back in Liebig's and Berzelius's time, it was not uncommon to describe experiments poetically with personal opinions as flourishes. These days, scientists are trained to talk about their work almost in a mechanical way to avoid feelings and poetic flights, often in the passive voice, a peculiar grammatical construction of English. For example, instead of saying, I heated the Erlenmeyer flask until the solution turned an exquisite shade of cerulean, we typically describe this as, the Erlenmeyer flask was heated until the solution turned blue with a peak absorption of 631 nanometers. I also note here the hands-off trend of many editors of chemical journals not to rewrite poor grammar of published papers. To me, as a professional technical writer, that's poor publishing, for a badly written work obscures the intent of the article and makes understanding the research more difficult. Badly written papers are more common when the native language of the writers is not English. This criticism is not a reflection of the authors of the paper, except to note that they can have a native speaker of a language proofread the paper before sending it off. In this way, other chemists can read, think about, and criticize your work. If you don't do this, you have failed as a scientist. Some non-scientists think that chemistry, or science in general, is a bunch of priests yesing each other to keep the public ignorant. But that's the opposite of how chemistry works. Anyone with the appropriate education, background, and experience can read and reproduce the experiments to see if they represent something real. This is not a religion based on texts that may or may not correspond to reality. Chemistry is based on observation of the real world and part of your job as a researcher is to convince your peers, other chemists, that you found something new and interesting during your work. For my own part, I have authored papers published in the Journal of Chemical Education, Journal of Vacuum Science and Technology A, Journal of Chemical Physics, Thin Solid Films, Corrosion, Journal of Coatings Technology, and Journal of Physical Chemistry B. I also co-authored a chapter in the book Structure and Dynamics of Weakly Bound Molecular Complexes. Not all of these are specifically chemical journals, but the articles I contributed to all have chemistry content. In our next episode, we learn of some important new discoveries using that new cool tool, the scanning probe microscope, particularly in moving individual atoms around on surfaces. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.